Well, you know, you know, you know, files. You know, files. As of the English pronunciation. Just, just because, it's, just, just because it's eight o'clock in the morning, <laughs> doesn't mean you have to think about wine. But it's all. It's, on the other hand, it's always a good time of the day to think about wine, and we have two. Rather fascinating stories today. Not just your everyday wine from New Mexico and from Spain and from and, and of course from California. And starting out in California, a, a new label. That's what I'm telling you, first of all, that you're listening to. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. On the menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we're going to be Peter, talking, as Peter, Peter, Peter indicated, about Peter, wines. He just, Peter just woke up, I think, or something like that. Go ahead, introduce. We're starting out with a, with a new name from a very respected California wine producer, Rodney Strong, and their name is Naughty Vines. We're so excited to be talking to Olivia Wright, who is the winemaker of an expression called Naughty Vines, and that's K-N-O-T-T-Y, Vines, um, which is uh, under the Rodney Strong Wine Estates. Um, welcome, Olivia. Um, it's been a while since we tried to, to start up this conversation with you, but um, I'm, I'm so glad we did. Um, it, we were asking you about your background. Um, and we, and we, and we found you. We found your secret. Your secret called <laughs> UC Davis. <laughs> yeah, you, you might have heard of it. <laughs> um, yes, thank you so much, Anne and Peter, for having me. Um, Did, so I, yes, I, I am a UC Davis grad. Um, I've been in the wine industry for about eight years now. Uh, been with uh, Rodney Strong for three of those years recently, um, and uh, the company uh, has honored me with uh, being in charge of winemaking for a new project called Naughty Vines, um, as you mentioned. Yeah, now you must PPY. really, <laughs> you must, have, you must be really well respected because this is a big rollout. Um, explain what Naughty Vines is. What's it the is. Mission? It's, it's a very new venture for us. Um, you know, Rodney Strong is, uh, you know, tried and true winemaking, very traditional styles. They have a very dedicated following. Um, and so Naughty Vines kind of gives us uh, an opportunity to try, you know, different avenues, uh, different fruit sourcing, and go for kind of a different clientele. Um, you know, this is, I am sort of making wine for my peers with this brand, which I really enjoy. Um, so the focus is to make uh, unpretentious wines uh, of high value, you know, over-delivering on quality, uh, but, you know, wines that are approachable to your everyday drinker. Um, the marketing is kind of centered around, you uh, basically indulgence, you know, everyday indulgences, um, something you don't have to break the bank for, but, you know, if it's Tuesday night and maybe you got to go to work tomorrow morning, but, hey, you can you can have one more glass of wine, why not? Uh, we have wine every day. I mean, Great. Our European roots. I think it's healthy. Back. I wanted to go back for just a second. Go ahead, Robin. Just 
for for those of our listeners who are perhaps out to the United States or are not as familiar with wine, the wine industry in the in the United States itself, and that's the primacy of this agricultural school at the University of California, Davis, which is a, an enology program, and 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 everybody who counts has been through it. But but there was one story I remember hearing that was very unusual, and uh, it, it, it may be that you're an inheritor of what happened. The person in the mm-hmm. story is Elaine. I can't remember her last name, but she was the she was the director and of the of Domaine Chandon, the sparkling wine house. Oh, she was uh-huh. a wonderful interviewer. I remember that. Elaine, it was Elaine Crane or something like that, and she and she was at Cal Davis. And she she reported to us that uh, when when she was gr- when she was graduating and and getting ready to take a, a position as a rookie winemaker, the the story goes that somebody from Cal Davis was talking to one of the leading winemakers in California and about who was available to join their program as a rookie winemaker, and mm-hmm. and the person at Cal Davis said, now, there's one woman in the class, but you won't want a woman for this job. <laughs> yes, the, the, the Davis program is actually majority women now, I believe. Yeah, things, well, you know, I was about to bring that up, things up things actually. Have up just, things have cleaned up just a little bit. Well, no, I mean, yeah. there's, um, there are all kinds of new theses about why we have so many uh, winemakers um, who are women. And also we have sommeliers who are women now. And um, it's particularly common in Spain, actually, no, you where, wouldn't. where you wouldn't expect it to be because of the, you know, the yeah. social stuff there. Elaine was very proud because Monsieur Tattinger, the, the owner of Domaine Chandon, chose mm-hmm. to feature her California sparkling wine in the big party that they had for the fake millennium. Uh-huh. Perfect. So she was. Really, she was. She. She thought. Per, perhaps I have arrived. <laughs> well, yes, there's now, definitely all sorts of opportunities opening up nowadays in the wine world. Right. Right. Now, Olivia, you have an interesting background. Um, tell us about your parents and, and going around growing up. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the the you know first and foremost question I always get. Um, I'm talking to people about my career is, you know, how do you end up in winemaking? Um, I uh, grew up in an airline family, so my parents are both pilots. Uh, their parents are pilots, uh, aunts and uncles, all pilots. <laughs> um, somehow I didn't become a pilot, but I did get to uh, travel with them quite a bit when I was uh, growing up um, and got to spend some time in some really great wine-growing regions, uh, including Bordeaux, um, including Rioja. Uh, I've spent some time in the... Uh, Okanagan Valley in British Columbia, um, a little bit of time, uh, you know, down in the central coast of uh, California, which is a really beautiful spot as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the lifestyle obviously kind of sticks out. Um, as I was saying, like, I think one of the cornerstones of especially European uh, civilization is, you know, people getting together at dinner uh, with their families and their friends and sharing bottles of wine and taking, you know, great enjoyment out of that, which is something that, you know, we don't always take advantage of here um, in my generation. So 
uh, that really stuck out to me growing up, and I thought, you know, wow, this is, um, I, I can see how much joy this brings to these people who are, you know, sharing this bottle of wine, and every bottle is something unique. It's a, it's a different experience that you get to enjoy together. So um, that just really made a huge impression on me, and I decided this is what I want to do with my life. Great. Um, so and then so came Davis. <laughs> so you just sign up. You just sign up. Is there, is there a front desk? Do you see Davis where you yeah, sign up for this program? I, <laughs> I was probably one of the very few people in my class at Davis that applied, you know, as a freshman. Um, you know, frequently it's a program that people come to either as a second career or, uh-huh. you know, they take community college classes and they uh, enter into the program. I actually entered into the Viticulture and Enology program at Davis as a freshman, so I wasn't even legal to drink wine at the time. Oh, how funny. <laughs> but I figured that's maybe I had a head start that way. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. So what did you do instead of drinking? Well, you did drink it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, my, my family had me... My family had me, you know, tasting wine, um, you know, growing up. So I, I, I knew that it was something that I was, you know, passionate about. But um, in terms of the, the curriculum, you know, there's a number of uh, general chemistry classes, biology classes, uh, viticulture oh, yes. classes that you need to take before you even get to, uh, you know, the wine tasting portion. Right. So uh, it wasn't really a problem for me at the time. There is, there is, there is I, I did not know when I was signing up for it how much, uh, like, really deep science was involved in the process. Oh, right. But, I was, <laughs> well, this is, this, is the thing, this is the thing that I wanted to mention on the way through. So, some people accuse Cal Davis of, of producing Bing. chemists rather than yeah. winemakers. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's, well, that's yeah, one that's, criticism, yeah. We, we uh, you, yeah, I mean, know. there's there's a lot of great schools out there, and I do think, you know, you, you should probably think if you're out there applying to a viticulture and analogy program, you know, there's there's things to consider as to what kind of winemaker you want to be. Do you want to be somebody who focuses on the science behind it? Or, you know, Fresno has a great program for, you know, that's very agricultural focused. So if you're looking to pursue vineyard management, um, that, you know, might be more of the path for you. Um, you know, it's 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 really all what you make of it, though. Well, you know, we, we interviewed somebody. Um, you talk about the importance of the science and winemaking. I, somebody around um, Napa, I think, I can't remember, um, uh, who was a, um, a winemaker and who had turned her attention to dealing with the effect of smoke on mm-hmm. grapes because of all the fires has that impacted yeah. you at all oh yeah it's, it's impacted everybody um yeah pretty much anywhere you're growing grapes that's uh starting to become quite an issue what um, happens we uh well smoke cane is a big is a big problem uh especially this year um i you know i'd be lying if i said everything was you know peachy keen for uh sonoma and napa we had both the lnu fire complex and the glass fire complex during this harvest mm. um which were really hard on a lot of producers um we got really lucky at rodney strong i think um because of the timing you know we had the lnu fire complex but we were uh able to you know do a lot of lab analysis to try to determine the risk of smoke taint um it was, you know, the, the, the wine community here really came together um, and just showed uh, 
a lot of tenacity, you know, a lot of, you know, they're very resolute and resourceful. A lot of the labs in the area kind of switch gears. Um, so oh, really? pharmaceutical labs, agricultural labs, um, you know, places that don't normally do this kind of testing would switch over to, to, to learn to do smoke paint analysis so that they could help the industry um, make picking decisions in time. Um, so oh, that's interesting. We've, now, now we when, fared when, pretty well <laughs> considering. Olivia, when, when, you, when you have smoke-affected smoke grapes, what what do you do? Do you just have to throw them away, or? Um, yeah, there's well, there's a couple things you can do. I, you know, there's no um, once you harvest the grapes, there's no real magic bullet for getting rid of smoke taint in wine. Right. Okay. Um, unfortunately, yeah, there's you know a lot of research is going towards trying to figure that out, but we're just not there yet. Um, what we ended up having to do, especially a lot of uh, Pinot Noir producers in the Russian River that got hit pretty hard this year, um, is yeah, you just you can't you just don't pick the grapes. Um, you know, luckily most of these growers have crop insurance, um, and I guess the silver lining is we had two very heavy yielding years uh, previous to this, so the market's kind of evening out a little bit from this. The prices are coming back, so that the growers are you know in a little bit uh, better situation. Um, but, yeah, we, we ended up not picking a fair amount of fruit this year. Um, oh, dear. No, yeah. Yeah, so, but, but I can tell you, you know, what we, what we did pick is, is going to be amazing. You know, we are, we are not compromising on quality at all um, because of any of this, you know. Some of our yeah, Alexander well, Valley vineyards, uh, you know, had, had no problems, and they're coming out to be, you know, some of the best – you know, Cabernet's, but yeah, that's what years. people have been telling us, yeah. Now, yeah. I, I had a question, which is, um, I'm a total, well, I'm not a total novice, that would be lying, but um, it, it's kind of a basic question, is I mean, uh-huh. the point of, of this new demographic that you're targeting for, for Naughty Vines wine is a less expensive, um, uh, and I don't want to say it, negatively less sophisticated but not um you, you know what i'm talking about how do you reduce sure. the cost um, what do you do to reduce the cost of the wine you make um well I, I would say you know the number one cost associated with making any wine is is the grapes so uh, something that uh is a little bit different about naughty vines versus you know the, the um, typical rodney strong portfolio Rodney Strong has always been rooted very deeply in Sonoma County. Um, Naughty Vines is an opportunity for us to kind of explore different vineyard sources. Um, so a lot of this is coming from the central coast of California. That is, uh, you know, really exciting for me personally because I spent the first six years of my career working in the central coast. So uh-huh. I am intimately familiar with a lot of these vineyard sources. And I know that there's, you know, just amazing value, amazing quality fruit, uh, but at a much lower price point, just because See, that's they its do value not is say the key. Sonoma yeah. County. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah, so, it. The so, value issue is the key. So, Olivia, Olivia, you, you're talking about Paso Robles and, and areas like that. Paso Robles, yeah. For we get some Cabernet from Paso Robles. Um, we get some Chardonnay from uh, Monterey County. We get, you know, you can get anything in Santa Barbara County. Um, right now, now the, yeah. 
these are not estate these are not estate wines though. You're you're buying These are California it. appellated, yeah. So got it. Um, I, I but we have sure. you know, we have relationships with growers that we've worked with uh, sure. that we that we know. Um and so it's 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 relatively consistent fruit sourcing, but there's just a little bit more flexibility so that it's it's nice for me as a winemaker that I don't have to say in a fire vintage I'm not constrained to working with, you know, what this one vineyard gives me for better or for worse. I have a lot of options to work with to try to meet the flavor profile that I'm looking for. Yeah, we we were we were in Pasadena Robles on a press tour for about a week. Some, some we had such ago, good time. <laughs> we, we, we met a group of guys who called themselves the Roan Rangers. Yeah, yeah. There, there were a bunch of wild people out there. <laughs> well, well they, they were they were very. It was a fascinating deal. I, I can't bring I can't bring to mind the name of their the, the California vineyard, but but it was founded by the Beaucastel family from France, and mm-hmm. the. And someone who had been a major distributor of Bocastel's wines in the United States, and they got together and they looked all over California for the best for the growing conditions, which would be the most most comparable to what they are in yeah. Bocastel. And uh, I've so, I've always been in awe of how successful Pastor Robles has been with grown varietals. You know, they can be very very tricky, and they. They do a really great job. Really, with them. I'm, a, I'm a Syrah fiend personally. So yeah, well, we had the we had the opportunity while we were at the wine event of all places in Charleston, South Carolina. We we met Mark Perrin, who is the current head head of Bocastel, and we listened to him make a presentation. And then when it was over, I said I went up to him and I said, "Could you do that into my microphone?" So I can share it with our <laughs> listeners around the world. And he said, "How long do you need?" I said, "How long do you have?" <laughs> he said, ten minutes." I said, "Done." Yeah. So we had a ten. That must have been um, Fabulous Creek, maybe. Fabulous right? Creek. That's that's the that's 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 the one that was founded by the Bocasel people. Yeah. yeah. Those are really well. Now, really nice talk wine. to us a little bit about the wines that that you said that we. Uh, sampled um so uh, presently we're making four wines under the naughty vines label um we just launched this you know midway through last year so it's definitely uh, a growing program um we have a chardonnay a pinot noir a cabernet sauvignon and a red blend so Uh relatively you know traditional styles um and, you know, overall, we're going for, you know, fun, approachable, ready to drink. They're all in screw cap bottles, which I personally love. I, you know, I've, I've found myself when I go in my wine cellar, that's always what I grab just because it's so, it's so approachable. It's so easy. Yeah, it <laughs> and, is. Um, exactly. Yeah. I'm with you. And they last forever. My, my stash is the, the intermediate stash is at the top of the stairs to the basement. Yeah. So uh, I have I have wine stashed everywhere. It's in it's in every room in my house. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. Now, step step back a little bit and just f- for those people who have who have bigger budgets, sh- share with our listeners the, if you like the the rest of the Rodney Strong portfolio. Ah, so Rodney Strong. Um, 
you know, we have quite a broad portfolio. Um, the main line, you know, our, our biggest productions are, would be our uh, Sonoma County Cabernet, um, and then our uh, we now have a California Chardonnay um, and the uh, Russian River Pinot Noir. Those are kind of our our three foundation wines. Um, we also have a Rodney Strong Rosé. That's a relatively new uh, product. It's been, you know, winning awards left and right. So um, that definitely sells out pretty quickly, but you should be able to find that in your local retailers. Um, and then, um, you know, we have a number of, of smaller kind of fun uh, production wines. We get to work with, you know, Malbec. We have Zinfandels. Um, Actually, our, we uh, we have an old vine Zinfandel that used to be called uh, Naughty Vine Zinfandel, which is kind of where the, oh, is that the new where product came from. Came from. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then you know our our, our broad, uh, it's Rodney Strong is sort of an umbrella company where we also have a couple of different um, outlets for different styles of winemaking, different clientele. Um, we. Uh, we uh, procured uh, Davis Bynum brands um, oh, right, right, as right. well, which is, you know, a very original uh, Russian River Pinot Chardonnay producer, um, kind of a sound. Well, this consolidation is, is very big in, in both wine and spirits right now, isn't it? Consolidation uh, of brands, I mean, under different um, ownership. Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, in the wine industry as a whole, that's kind of, you know, people are taking advantage of economies of scale. Um, you know, this is Rodney Strong's all produced under one roof. Um, you know, there's there's three of us in total making these wines. So Really? It, it's not, yeah, we're, we're not at all just like going around buying up brands left and right. It's very um, It's very targeted, you know, just based on, uh, you know, what we think that, you know, our market is lacking in, if if it is lacking in anything, um, and, you know, anything that would really uh, increase value uh, for our so customer so your, base. So your, your last name isn't Gallo? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't going to throw anybody under the bus, exchange. but... <laughs> yeah, Gallo just um, exchanged brands with another one. Here's, a, here's, a, here's a couple of funny stories for you. We were in Friuli, Vanessa Julia, and oh, wow. he took us to a series, of, a series <laughs> of vineyards. And we, and we went to one called La Vie Romance. And it was really interesting because the last, the last name of the owner was Gallo. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, and teeny but tiny, we're talking about small potatoes here. But he, but he, couldn't, <laughs> he, he, couldn't, he wasn't allowed to use it. Gallo had the they name. They sued him. Oh, yeah. They'll, they'll stick the lawyers on you quickly, huh? <laughs> yeah. And here, here's another funny one, and then, then, then we'll let you go. But did, <laughs> did you ever meet Mary, I think it's Mary Keene at Landmark? I have not. Okay, well, you probably won't meet her anymore because she, she had a very, very nice vineyard making beautiful Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But what, we, we discovered that her married name was Deer, like in the green tractors. Oh, dear, oh. great. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, so, so we understood why she could afford a vineyard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, you know, was, the, the, 
there's like Good. celebrities ingrained all throughout the, oh, yeah, the winemaking right. community, which is funny. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just wanted to give you a chance. We've been talking about this um, um, expression as being budget friendly and so forth, um, but this is very special to your heart since you um, produce, you made it. Uh, this uh, these wines, these the ones that we tried. Uh, what what would you? I'd like to give you an opportunity to uh, to rave a little bit about the distinguishing characteristics aside from price range of those wines. Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll kind of go through you know the the portfolio a little bit one by one. Um, so the Chardonnay, you know, I am a big Chardonnay fan. I, I've listened to your show once or twice, and I've heard the the phrase uh, "anything but Chardonnay." So uh, exactly. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to convince you otherwise. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I I try to make this wine um, to be you know balanced and refreshing. Um, as I mentioned before, we get some of this fruit from uh, Monterey. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a blend typically between Monterey and Sonoma County. Um, the thing we get from Monterey that we don't see as often in Sonoma County is, uh, is these really uh, bright tropical fruit flavors. Um, right. So that's, that stands out definitely from, from the rest of the, the uh, you know, Chardonnay portfolio. Um, Looking for balanced acidity, you know, a lot of the Chardonnays at this price point are going to be, you know, big and fat and flabby and oaky, and, you know, they might be delicious for one glass, but then it's kind of like, okay, well, now I need to go take a nap. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on, you know, a fresh, fresh acidity, uh, you know, something balanced that keeps you coming back for another glass. Um, I do use a little bit of oak on this wine, so that's just a little hint of vanilla and kind of creme brulee flavors. Creme brulee is the one dessert that I have a real weakness for. So yeah. when I when I pick that out in a in a wine, I I'm I'm hooked instantly. <laughs> um, and you know I, I'm I'm big on leaves string with this wine. I think it just helps uh it helps keeps it keep it fresh, keeps it protected from oxidation. Um, but then it also adds you know big. Nice, uh, rich mouthfeel, richer body. Um, just all together, uh, you know, like I said, just going for a uh, approachable, drinkable everyday wine. Um, and then we have uh, Pinot Noir, um, which this is a newer, we, we bottled this somewhat recently, so it might still be working its way out to you guys um, in Pittsburgh area. But uh with the Pinot, I um, am seeking a little bit more density than, you know, your average Pinot. Um, it is a California Pinot, so I'm trying to kind of stay true to that style. Um, not really trying to be uh, a Francophile making, you know, super austere, right. earthy, shy kind of Pinot. Um, you know, this is this is a little bit more flashy um, to me. You know, it's big, dark cherry flavors. Um, I'm a big fan of, of spice uh, so it's got a little bit of a little bit of spicy oak characteristics, some like sassafras or, or root beer kind of characteristics, if you will. Um, and then uh, the, the the big product that we have is a is the cabernet. Um, we started in, with a 2017 cabernet, and that sold out very quickly. Really, <laughs> you might still be able to find a couple bottles on the shelf here and there, but we've already in uh, just a couple of months we've moved on to the 2018 cabernet, which is definitely. 
uh, promising. Shows people are liking this wine. Um, it and is. it's won a couple of double gold medals out here in uh, San Francisco. That's always good. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on the right track with it. Um, you know, and this, for Cabernet, this is, you know, I'm going for kind of an archetypal Cabernet style. I like it to taste like a Cabernet and not just like a generic red wine. Um, but, you know, I'm going for soft, smooth, drinkable mouthfeel, so I'm trying to manage the tannins um, to make it, you know, so that you don't have to leave this on a shelf for five, ten years before you can <laughs> crack it open and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with that, you know, I'm using I'm using all free run juice. I don't use any hard press for this wine, um, which is you know the hard press is when you're really squeezing out all that really dry, gritty tannin from the seeds and the skins. Wow. Um, I focus on 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 free run, the nice soft, juicy kind of wine, um, which is a more expensive way to do it. But you know, I I believe in doing things right. Um, so and you know this wine brings more kind of black fruit characteristics. Um, I use um, a medium plus toast on the oak for this, so that brings out really nice kind of dark chocolate and mocha flavors. Uh, oh, very, very delicious. I'm, I'm dreaming of I'm dreaming of what to what to serve with uh, dog breast tonight. <laughs> oh, that'd be that would be good. That would be good. Um, and then oh, we well, the last. We oh, dog breast. <laughs> No, I, just, I wish we had some of your wine to go with it. We drank uh-huh. it all already. <laughs> well, that must mean you liked it, right? <laughs> we liked it. We, we liked, liked it. it. <laughs> anyway, the, 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 the scoop is you can find out anything you'd like about Naughty Vines and the rest of the Rodney Strong portfolio on your website, which is? Uh, NaughtyWines.com. Naughty Wines, Okay. Yeah, and you can also do naughtyvineswine.com if you like. We'll loop you to the same place. And the winemaker, Olivia Wright, you know what you're doing, and I think that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Up, we've got Doug Diefenthaler talking to us about a really interesting operation that we just knew nothing about called Vara Winery and Distillery. Um, and uh, it's still an evolving scenario, but very interesting. And, but who, who knew, including us, that the first vines were planted in the United States in the state of New Mexico? Oh, right, right, which, right. Which at the time was not yet a state of New Mexico, it was... Mexican territory. I always thought that they were the first vines were planted in Pennsylvania. Uh, I heard that. Okay, well, the, most of the story says it was the planting was in in the in the missions in California. Yeah, which but makes it tu- sense. It, yeah. But it turns out that yeah, isn't that isn't even right either. So here's Doug to tell us the story. Okay. Okay, we're talking to Doug Diefenthaler. It's been a complicated road to be able to talk to you, Doug, about Vara wines. <laughs> um, are you feeling good? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm looking forward to the new year. Oh, aren't we all? <laughs> Let's hope. We're, we're, um, we're hoping somebody's going to jab us in the 
palm or the shoulder or something. <laughs> no, um, I, I know about the wines. Um, the correct title is Vara Wine and Spirits, too? Well, Vara well, Winery right? and Distillery, um, but, you know, the winery is first and foremost. Uh, distillery is another project that we have, and, and it's... Uh, it's very exciting, and we're doing very well to get off uh, the, the starting blocks with. But uh, the winery's been up and running for a couple of years, and real proud of where we've uh, where we've come with with those those items. Well, tell tell us about where you are and 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 the backstory of of what the the, the winery is about. Sure. Um, well, it all starts with uh, real bona fide new world, old world history. Um, we've actually got history here in New Mexico. Um, we are we are we reside in the state of New Mexico, which before it was ever a state, uh, obviously before the United States was ever the United States back in 1629. What became New Mexico is the site of where the very first vinifera, vitis vinifera grapes, in other words, native to the European continent. Really? Winemaking grapes were ever planted here in the New World because vinifera, uh, grapes you know like Cabernet and Chardonnay and Tempranillo and Albarino and Pinot Noir, these aren't native to the Western Hemisphere. They're, they're native to the European continent. Vitis vinifera. In, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, Vitis labrusca is native to this, to this continent, and they have names that you might be familiar with, names like uh, Niagara and Concord. Um, they, oh, yeah. they make wine, but they tend to make a little better jelly. Um, there's, yeah. one in, there's one in Missouri, right? What's the name oh, of the one sure. in Missouri? There's, sure. There's uh, almost... Almost every state now grows grows winemaking grapes. As a matter of fact, I believe they all do. But uh, some of them are um, are concentrated on Labrusca varieties, uh, and they're uh, for the most part in the eastern states where they were found and developed. But a lot of them have moved from uh, the Labrusca varieties to French American hybrid. In other words, hybrids between Vinifera and Labrusca. Um, we are celebrating, Vara celebrates the very first vinifera that was successfully planted, propagated, and continually harvested and made into wine in the United States, or what became the United States. Um, we, uh, we're extremely proud of that being the location where it came from. California being the second location, which dated 140 years after they were planted and propagated, harvested, and made into wine here in New Mexico. Um, 1769 was the first date of their plantations of vinifera uh, vineyards, while 1629, uh, and every year since then, uh, they've been harvested here in New Mexico. Um, that's that's a proud point for us because New Mexico typically uh, lacks prominence on lists of 
best or worst or first or last here in the U.S. Uh, we don't get to be first at very much. And this is something we're clearly first at, uh, being the cradle of the American wine experience right here, 140 years before California. And, you know, that's, I never knew any of this. It's just amazing. And the, cr- the, cradle, the cradle was pretty close to where Trump is building his wall, right? Well, it's still probably 180, 90, 200 miles from where that was. But, okay. um, yeah, they, 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 uh, the Spaniards came in through the Gulf of Mexico to an area near Veracruz, uh, came in toward Mexico City, and then um, the King of Spain in the day, uh, late 1500s, had the original Camino Real uh, constructed into the north, the north country, uh, which is New Mexico and USA proper, um, uh, and they traveled up the Camino Real, which as soon as it got to the Rio Grande River, which um, which initiates and has its headwaters in the southern Colorado Rockies, um, and then down splits the state of New Mexico in half, and then goes down and rides the New Mexico-Texas border for a way, and then it's then it. Uh, obviously is the Texas-Mexico border before it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the Spaniards that, that brought these cuttings from Spain came up the Camino Real and found a suitable place along the Rio Grande, uh, very near where Socorro, New Mexico, is today. And you'll find that on the map to be quite in central New Mexico. Uh, and so that is where they, um, they first planted vinifera, and in four years later, in 1633, the, the vines were mature enough to provide fruit for winemaking. And every year since then, wine has been made from that, that varietal, which was known as or is known as Listan Prieto. Uh, it, Prieto is the dark skin of the, the Prieto. The Listan grape is, is a white grape. The Listan Prieto is the dark-skinned Listan. And um, it's also known, Listan is also known as Palomino in Spain, which you might know as the, the grape variety that makes sherry. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, this is a uh, dark-skinned variety, the Listan Prieto. And uh, by the time it's planted in, uh, in California, it was planted on their small Camino Real, which went from Baja up along the coast, uh, to uh, the San Francisco Bay, just north side Vallejo and Sonoma, and it was the trail where all the missions of California were built along. Right. And so the variety became known as the mission variety in the U.S. because this is what they had planted uh, at each mission to, uh, to uh, provide for their daily sacraments. Now, hold on a second now. I want to... Had another unusual component, as, as if this isn't unusual enough. There's something else unusual going on, because you're not satisfied to say in, enough. Enough will have uh, the, the vines you just described. We also want to introduce a foreign component. So some, so somehow or other, you're bringing in grape juice or grapes or what? Well, which we we not sure, uh, from Spain. We we do we 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 celebrate the Spanish 
Connectivity, the Spanish Foundation of the American Wine Experience, um, and their partnership in New Mexico, coming here and opening up New Mexico from Europe. Um, and in order to do that, uh, we only make, we do make wine from heirloom grapes of the Listan Prieto. Um, we call it Vina Cardinal. And for, uh, to speak of Vina being vine and Cardinal being a cardinal point for the primary, the first. So the first vine, uh, was Listan Prieto here. It's certainly not the, the current most prominent vine of the Vitis vinifera family, uh, but we do make that wine and uh, people like it considerably. It's an aperitif that is fortified the way that the monks of the day in 1633 fortified their wine. But in celebration of that whole concept of bringing wine to the new world, we do it by being very Spanish-centric. And yes, we, uh, we use Spanish varietal, Spanish indigenous varietal grapes from the West Coast, and we use Spanish uh, indigenous varietal from Spain. Uh, things like Tempranillo, uh, Albarino, Garnacha, um, uh, Monastral. We, we, these grapes are a lot more contemporary for fine table wine making, and so yes, we, we also employ those kinds of varieties to spread out our our product line. Now, are you are you are you growing the are you you're growing the grapes in New Mexico? You're not the Listan Prieto is being yes. The Listan Prieto is grown here in New Mexico. The uh, while there is some of those other varieties grown here, they're not of the potential that we need in order to make the level of table wine that we want to make and show to people. So we look for the very best examples of those Spanish varieties that we can find. And we've uh, we found uh, some vineyards we like very much in the cool climate of the south central coast of California, the lower part of the Edna Valley, and okay. then into Santa Maria and Santa Barbara County. Well, let, let, some real good make, vineyards let, for these. Doug, let me make sure I'm, I'm understanding you correctly. So in the, in the descriptions of the wines that, that you sent us, you name, you name grapes which are recognizable being from Spain, but you're saying that this, the rootstock, if you like, is from Spain, but it's actually, the grapes are actually grown in the United States. For, for part of our line, that is true for and the introductory part of our line, we make four table wines that we raise the grapes in Spain itself. We process the grapes as near as possible to the vineyard, and we get them fermentation stable. In other words, basic wine stability. We, we take that wine, we put it in 1,000-liter uh, totes, we call them, and they're 1,000-liter containers, and uh, seal them, and we put them in a uh, shipping container and bring them here to our winery in Albuquerque, where we then barrel them down and let them age here. And then we partake in some assembly and blending. If the wine needs any uh, uh, affecting uh, support, 
before uh, blending and bottling. It gets it here. We, we are in complete control of the final product. Then, then it's, it's uh, finished and out of barrel for bottling, and we bottle it right here at our winery. So while we do have uh, some American Appalachian Spanish varietal wine, we also have Spanish Appalachian Spanish right. varietal wine. Now, what, what brought you to our attention was that not, not, a, not only producing wines that sound very interesting, by now, by now our listeners are probably entirely hooked on saying, boy, there's some new wines here I must try. But you, you did a little prize winning too. T- tell us something about that. Yeah, we've, uh, we've been proud of our wine for a long time. And, and uh, coming from New Mexico, different competitions have, oh, they have wine from all over the place. Um, our New Mexico hasn't traditionally fared real well. Uh, with their wines in some of these. I'm talking about San Francisco International Competition, the San Francisco Chronicle Competition, the New York International Competition, uh, the sommelier, uh, new sommelier competition. These, these kinds of competitions aren't a single writer that sits down and uh, sees the wine, pours it out of a bottle, and gives it a score and, uh, and a tasting note. Uh, which we're very used to seeing in a lot of publications. These are actual competitions where there is there is more than two dozen probably professionals from the wine industry that are right. in a tasting panel that are double blind, have no idea where the wine came from and no idea what the wine is, and they score them uh, based on... Uh, uh, a tasting and uh, uh, a profile and uh, a, a card that they have developed for this. We we uh, for the last several. Excuse me, I'm That's sorry okay. if that disrupted. That sounded. It was a, it was a fall. Okay. Anyways, um, for the last couple of years, we've we've always been fortunate enough to win a silver here or there. Um, this last year. The San Francisco International Competition, with uh, with all these judges and 8,600 wines from around the world, um, we almost, I would say, we got a body of work reward because we ended up getting, uh, uh, I think, three gold medals, four bro- uh, silver medals, and two bronze medals. Yeah, there was a whole rash of them. Yeah, basically our entire lineup. Uh, meddled very well, and anything in the metal range is, uh, you know, if you're bronze, you're like 89 points and above. If you're silver, you're into the 90s, and if you're if you're gold, you're hovering close to the top. Uh, if you're not there, um, and then uh, you know we re- we uh, we did the same thing on the other coast on the New York International Wine Competition. We ended up scoring uh, for the body of work with those kinds of medals as well and and it uh it really uh was gratifying to see the recognition uh from other wine professionals for what we're doing here in New Mexico with the best that we can possibly put forward at with our our means our our equipment our focus and our our kind of premonition about what we're trying to accomplish 
Well, what made the difference that you're suddenly being noticed? I mean, did you make any changes to to process Not it? Not really. I think I think what we possibly a little bit because our notion each vintage is to be as good or better than we were last year. That's really dependent upon the fruit, and it's dependent upon how we handle it. And a big a big part of that was making sure that we're handling it all here. No matter where the original fruit was grown, we're handling it all here, and we're applying nothing but our own, you know, uh, labor and 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 motivation to the final product. And that that could be part of it, I'm sure. But it's also our insistence that last year was good. This, we're going to do better next year. Well, where did you come in? I mean, how did you end up in this business? You're talking about me personally? Yes. Well, I graduated from Ohio State uh, in 1978 with a degree in agricultural economics and business. Uh-huh. And I discovered very shortly after that the wine, winery, vineyard, viticulture, enology was part of the agricultural business aspect. And I thought that sounded a lot more interesting than... Uh, <laughs> than uh, just basic fruit, vegetables, beef, pork, chicken, <laughs> fish, what have you. Uh, so I dedicated my uh, my early career to getting into that business, and before the end of 78, I was in it. And this is all I've done, uh, was the fine wine business, fine beverage business that, that comes ultimately from the soil, from, from the ground. And... Um, this is uh, a labor that isn't as it, as it can be laborious. I think it's a cliche to say if you if you do something that you like, you never work a day in your life. Uh, sure. We work hard, but we we enjoy what we do, and so this has taken me through my life's career. And I have not been a producer until. Um, we we initiated our entity, Vara Winery, uh, in April of 2014. And um, it's, uh, until then, I was always on the importing, um, fine distribution, and marketing side of the wine business. Uh, this is, since 14, I've been involved uh, for the first time as a producer. And it's, it's the same industry and the, all the same issues and more and uh, more things to learn and it's got my attention and uh, uh, this is how I'll finish out, I'm sure. Uh, there won't be another venture for me in, in the industry because this, this is the cumulative effort of everything I've done. Now, talk to, talk to us about the other thing we mentioned at the beginning, which is the distillery side of the business. Yeah, well, we're we're very aware that Spain uh, and the Spanish are uh, very early, very very early pioneers of distilling. Um, the earliest distillations uh, were Muslim, came from the Moors and uh, across in Africa. I mean. There was uh, distilling throughout the Muslim world, but it was primarily uh, uh, aromatics, uh, perfumes, uh, things yeah, like I that. Th- I thought they didn't drink. 
they didn't. And they still distilled, but they distilled things for other purposes, not for alcohol. Oh, okay, got it. They, they brought it across um, to the Iberian Peninsula, and those folks thought distilling was pretty cool, but they decided to take some other basic material and distill it. And what that was was either wine for, for, uh, for brandy or grains or a mash for spirits. And um, they were very successful at that. It spread through Europe into northern Europe, central Europe, throughout the world, distilling became known. Well, we were very aware of that, and we're also, uh, apart from our just dying appreciation for the wines of Spain, um, you go to the south into uh, Hadath, in that area where um, sherry is abound and, and prominent, oh, yeah. but, but also uh, uh, Brandy de Jerez. Uh, a brandy that is uh, unique in the world, not being that it's it's made from grape-based wine like any other brandy might be, uh, whether it's cognac or armagnac or or anything else. Uh, but it is then aged in a different manner. It's aged the way they age sherry in a Solera system of barrels that rotate and continue to compound. And so I, I've always been an admirer of that brandy there. And so we thought, well, we've got wine. If we get a still, we can put some wine in that still, and we could make some brandy. And if we get some, some used sherry barrels, we could develop a Solera system and start making a Spanish-style brandy right here in the U.S. And so that's what we did. We got a 1,000-liter still hand-hammered, hand-soldered, 1,000-liter Alcatera, or a pot still, from Hoga Stills of Spain, H-O-G-A. Oh, yeah, right. And, um, and it's, uh, it's a lovely piece of work in itself because it's very classic. Um, but, um, yeah, we've, uh, we've been putting a good amount of wine, and this is all basically New Mexico wine that isn't bottled, that goes into that. And we make a brandy, which the first highest grade that comes out, the Spanish would call Olandas. And um, that was because their initial customer for that level of brandy were the people from Holland or the Hollanders, and they called it Olandas. So we we make our version of that, and we call it Paso Uno, which translates to step one or the first step. And uh, it's the first step in making a brandy de Jerez or a Solera aged brandy because you first have to get it to that point and then it goes into barrel for Solera aging. So we've, we've, we've played with that and of, of, of recent really, and we're going to continue to take that and improve on it, but of recent release and, and very, very, uh, very happy uh, to say that um, our other production has actually stepped in front and gotten some recognition. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that gin is, in fact, the second most consumed 
distilled spirit among the Spanish people. Yeah, I do. <laughs> we, yeah. we know that. It's a big deal. And it, it's because of the long influence of the Britons that uh, have been there, and, and uh, Spain has grown accustomed to and fancy for, for gin. And they make some Mediterranean gin. They make some gin of their own. Um, we found that while we were there, uh, we were there every year doing our rounds and our uh, our interviews and, and our consulting with our viticulturalists and our, our enologists there, we found gin to be very interesting there. And so we we put together one here, and um, be doggone, uh, Proof Awards competition gave it uh, 99 points and a double gold. Really? What, kind, what style is it? It's weak. Uh, we were inspired by the Mediterranean gins of the Iberian Peninsula, but we don't have the ocean nearby us, but we do have the desert. And so we've, we've termed it a high desert gin because some of the aromatics come from very high altitude harvest. Uh, and there are also aromatics that aren't used in, uh, in, in London gins or necessarily in the Mediterranean gins. A lot of our aromatics are. It's a juniper base, which is the same almost uh, throughout the gin community. But uh, and there's citrus aspects. But we also use some sage and um, and some other things really? from the high desert that uh, that really give it a uniqueness and uh, a very pronounced, very elegant, while light and um, uh, flavor and aromatic that just lifts you. It's got a wonderful uh, mouthfeel and viscosity. It's not, it's not a very bold, uh, big brute of a London dry gin. It is more, a more airy and, uh, and complex gin, kind of similar to the Mediterranean gins of Spain, but different enough based on the aromatics we use. So well, you have like to tell us when that's available. It's, it's available here now, but I'm afraid... That's something that doesn't get shipped because it's uh, a spiritist beverage, and they don't allow that going through the mail just yet. So, uh-huh. okay, that'll, well, uh, when, when you when you when you when you can put it on your put it on your list. We're, you got it. We're gin but drinkers. It's Along with that, we've uh, we've kind of done a compromise with the uh, Vina Cardinal, the aperitif that we made from the Listan Prieto. We are also admirers uh, when we're in Spain of the vermouth that they make, right. and uh, it's not really light cocktail recipe vermouth. It's vermouth to be taken solo as as its oh, own, yeah. and an hour of the vermouth in the hour of vermouth on the afternoon, a little uh, aperitif that is uh, a brightening pick me up, and uh, so we make a seco and a dulce, and that, however however, is shippable because it's still in a aperitif wine category, though it is fortified to about 16.5% alcohol. It's uh, a wonderful um, example of old-world vermouth. Uh, that yeah, is didn't we interview somebody who makes that rabbit? We, we have interviewed people who made vermouth. But, in uh, Spain, I mean. Uh, no, no we, 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 we dealt with, the pe- with people making... The uh, what was the name of the what was the name of the spirit? That's, uh, I, I thought vermouth itself actually that we thought. No, we, I we don't know. The, the one the one we drank at that uh, that 
place in Spain. Oh, yeah, Spain. that was not what I was thinking was, of. It was, called P, it was called PX, Pedro Jimenez. Pedro Jimenez. Yeah, yeah but that's, that's not, I thought there was a vermouth banker we interviewed. That's typically a dessert wine. Right, well. Well, actually. But it we, is fortified, <laughs> yeah. We we drank it, actually, with our meal, and it was, a, we had a meal, a lunch, with the uh, people who owned the uh, the producer, um, who owned the, the facility. Well, I, and they say you have to start with a beer so you don't get hung over. <laughs> you start yeah. with a beer and then you well, drink I, this all through I, lunch. I actually have had, uh, I actually have had dry Pedro Menes. Uh-huh. Made as a dry white table wine, and it's, right. it's very good. But predominantly, most Pedro Menes goes into a fortified dessert wine. Predominantly, right. Right. but uh, it's lovely. It's lovely as an opening wine for a lunch or a dinner. I, I don't. I, I agree with you entirely. It, it can be very lovely. <laughs> well, you know, this is all very interesting. I wasn't so sure that there was that, that much information, but we could get, probably go on a long time. Uh, more on this, but um, I, I guess we've, we've run out of time. So um, I want to thank you for talking to us about all of this. It's a very exciting, and there's so much information to, to pick up on all this. Boy, you seem to be having a lot of fun, Doug. Uh, well, thank again, you very much. Yeah, again, listeners, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's a, it should go on your list for sure. Well, I appreciate Vara, that. Vara V A R A Vineyards. Vara Vineyards. Vara Wines. If, if you would like to, and your listeners to check Vara Wines. V A R A W I N E S. Vara Wines. dot com is our exactly. website, and um, and there's an awful lot of information there, and it's uh, it's good information, um, and there's also a way to join uh, Club Vara, which is no cost to get started whatsoever. It's just buy the wine that is that is shipped every other month, four bottles every other month that I curate and select and uh, discount it, of course. And it's a good way to get to know us, especially if you're at a distance and not able to stop in this evening and try us out in person. Yeah. Well, you seem to be having a lot of fun, and you're fun to talk to. So. Well, thank you. It, it is, it, like I said, if you do what you like, you don't work a day in your life. Right. Good, okay, good well, advice. Well, Doug, thank you so much, and um, continue, and best luck with your uh, distillery efforts, too. Thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure to be here. Do you remember the radio broadcaster named Paul Harvey? Yes. Paul, we're doing Paul Harvey today, and as Paul would say, that is... The rest of the story. So thank you for listening to Vara Wines and Naughty Vines. And we'll see you again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.